Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll learn how to recognize and react to the signs and symptoms of heart attack in men and women. Women tend to have less of that classic presentation. So they may get the shortness of breath, but no chest pain. They may get the sweating, the nausea, no chest pain. Then we'll talk about why so few boys and young men are receiving the HPV vaccine that can protect them from genital warts and cancer. It's possible that it's lack of awareness that there's a vaccination available. They either kind of are not compliant with it, they don't come to the doctors regularly, they're not aware of it. Or hereditary cancers with a doctor who specializes in genetic risk assessment. If a, if a person is not affected by cancer, but they have an immediate first degree relative with a young age, we do want to assess them. All that and a visit from our Healing News after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, two urologists will discuss the risks to young men who skip getting the HPV vaccine. Then, a doctor with expertise in genetic risk assessment will talk about hereditary cancers. But first, a cardiologist will explain how to recognize and react to heart attack signs and symptoms in men and women. Sometimes the signs and symptoms of heart attack can be subtle, but the result can still be deadly. Here to help us understand how to react is Dr. Robert Carhart Jr., an Associate Professor of Medicine at Upstate. Thank you for being here. You're very welcome. So if I understand correctly, a heart attack happens when the blood flow to the heart itself is depleted um, because of a coronary artery is narrowed from a buildup of fat, cholesterol, or something else, correct? Correct. So is this a sudden thing or is it a gradual thing? Well, the, the development of those blockages or those narrowings is, is a slow and subtle process. People don't develop, you know, kind of a, a narrowing overnight. The, the heart attack itself is typically when that plaque becomes unstable and quote-unquote ruptures, um, and the artery is suddenly closed off completely. So, so that's when you might feel symptoms. That, that's classically the heart attack. Okay. So um, what's the difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest? The, the difference being a heart attack in, in general sense means that there's a sudden decrease or interruption to the blood supply and the oxygen supply to the muscle. Um, that typically causes heart muscle to start dying, and that's what we talk when we talk about heart attack. Cardiac arrest is the, the sudden stoppage of the heart. Now, you can have a cardiac arrest associated with a heart attack. You can have a cardiac arrest related to an electrical problem and have totally normal coronary arteries. Um, so there, there's a difference in the sense that heart attacks aren't necessarily a total stoppage of the heart. The change in the heart muscle can lead to an arrest. So it can lead to irregular heart rhythms and a cardiac arrest. But um, classically, the two are slightly different. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, a heart attack, does it permanently? You mentioned heart muscle dying, so that sounds permanent to me. There, it can cause some t permanent 
right. changes to the heart um, One of the things that we do when we're trying to diagnose a heart attack is we measure blood levels of an enzyme released by heart muscle, typically when it shouldn't be present in your bloodstream. Okay. So when the heart muscle cells are stressed, become ischemic, this enzyme starts leaking out, um, which implies that those cells will eventually die. The, the real push in terms of the therapies for heart attacks is basically to try to intervene as early as possible to minimize that amount of heart cell death. Okay, and that's why it's important. This is an emergency. It needs to be treated. It, it, absolutely, yeah. which is why it's important to kind of pay attention to symptoms. So what are the symptoms? What are people likely to feel, and um, is it different for men and women? Um, it, it, it's a good question. I mean, the, the classically everyone thinks heart attack. They think of that, you know, elephant sitting on my chest, a crushing substernal pain. That occurs in the chest it's associated most often with shortness of breath with sweating sometimes nausea um, you get sick to your stomach with all of these other problems um, so that's the classic symptoms and you know when you go back through the literature um, men and women both can experience that um, the difference being is that women tend to have less of that classic presentation and more of what there's, what's referred to as atypical symptoms. So they may get the shortness of breath, but no chest pain. They may get the sweating, the nausea, no chest pain. Um, there are, there's information out there that women don't typically get the elephant sitting on their chest, they get the elephant sitting on their abdomen or their belly, um, and they feel a pressure there. Um, in, in one of the more common symptoms for women is a sudden sense of being tired or fatigued. Um, they may be just sitting doing something and suddenly feel like, I'm, my goodness, I have to go to sleep. I just can't stay awake. Um, so, however, there are probably, you know, a, a large percentage of women who still get that pain that goes and the pressure that can radiate up into the neck, down the arm. So you, you mentioned, that, you know, a woman could be sitting there and feeling overwhelming need to be exhausted or mm -hmm. tired or whatever. But I thought heart attacks only happened on exertion. But no, that's not true. That is not true. Um, you know, typically what we see most often with exertion is not a true is not a heart attack, but rather angina. So mm -hmm. that, in a sense, is your warning sign. Um, oh. So. The, the arteries are narrowed, the supply lines are kind of crimped down a little bit. So it's, it's kind of like if you think about it with your car, if your gas line's a little plugged up and you step on the accelerator, it hesitates a sure. little. That's what engine is. It's, it's kind of telling you, we can't keep up with this. So you get that chest discomfort. Um, but as soon as you stop, it goes away. Now, certainly, if, you really, if you're exerting yourself, you can rupture a plaque and cause a heart attack. But just as often, you're not doing anything when this occurs. And it's just, it was time for that plaque to rupture, and here it is. Um, over the years, what sorts of reasons have your patients given you for ignoring symptoms or not acting as quickly as perhaps they should have? Well, some of it's the atypical nature. Um, you know, I, I actually remember one patient who... All he had was pain from his elbow to his wrist. 
Um, and he would get that intermittently when he was outside shoveling snow, doing different things. Didn't pay much attention to it. He just thought it was a muscle ache. And then it came on and just wouldn't go away. And he finally decided he needed to go get checked. And indeed, he was having a heart attack. Another woman just thought she had the a GI bug or the flu. She was vomiting and just couldn't stop. And she finally went to the emergency room and her EKG showed that she was having a heart attack. So a lot of times it's recognition of symptoms. Sometimes it's interesting and really, unfortunately, as I tell a lot of my patients, denial can be a fatal disease. You know, they know something's wrong. They just don't want to go get checked. Neat. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Associate Professor of Medicine and Cardiologist, Dr. Robert Carhart, Jr. from Upstate. Um, so what should people expect if they call 911 and they're reporting chest pain or shortness of breath or some of these symptoms we've been talking about? Well, and, and as we mentioned, you know, one of the big pushes that has come from the cardiology societies, the American Heart Association, is, you know, getting immediate access to care. You know, as soon as you recognize symptoms, you really need to get taken care of because, again, if you can have that artery reopened, you lose a lot less heart muscle, your long-term survival is better. So you call 911 and let them know you're having a heart attack, it becomes a priority emergency. Um, the EMTs will get there, the paramedics will arrive, you'll be put on a, a monitor to see what your heart rhythm is, being, is doing at the time. Um, they will give you nitroglycerin, which is a sublingual tablet that dilates up the arteries of the heart. So sublingual, you, you put, put it, it under your, your tongue. tongue. Okay. Um, and they will try as quickly as possible to get you to the nearest hospital that can hopefully do what you need in terms of interventions. Now, you mentioned um, that enzyme test or the mm -hmm. blood test for the enzyme. Um, so that's one thing that person that, may... Yeah, that typically will happen on arrival to the hospital, but a lot of what is going to occur is going to be based on your symptoms and based specifically on your EKG. The standard, for example, at, at University Hospital in the emergency room is you will get an EKG within five minutes of arrival if your symptom is chest pain because that really many times dictates what happens. The enzyme test takes, you know, can take an hour to come back from the lab. And again, that's an hour you don't want to be wasting time for. So some of these tests can rule out mm -hmm. the, the heart attack so that maybe it's something else going on. But if it is showing that it's a heart attack, what are, like, what are some of the treatments that people might face. Yeah. The, the, one of the things that'll happen and typically will happen even in the ambulance before you get to the hospital is you'll be given aspirin. Um, and it's not the old joke to take two aspirin and call me in the morning. You're given aspirin because it helps prevent blood clots. Wow. So it is a blood thinner. And that um, is going to hopefully decrease the amount of clotting that's going on in your artery. So you'll receive aspirin. You may receive other blood thinners. Um, you're going to get medications, uh, as I mentioned, the nitroglycerin, to try to help improve the blood flow to the heart. But if you're having a true, what is known as an ST elevation MI, um, the priority is as quickly as possible to get you to a cath lab, to get your artery opened mechanically. Okay. Can Does it... 
does it depend on whether it's a complete blockage or a partial blockage? Or when would you find out if it's a complete or right. partial? A complete blockage typically will give you, as described, this ST elevation. So there's changes that we will see on an EKG that is a, a reflection of what's going on in that artery. If that artery is completely blocked, then the heart muscle, its entire thickness, becomes ischemic or means it's deprived of oxygen. And we see that change on the EKG. If the artery is partially blocked, um, we may see those segments not go up, but uh. rather go down. And that changes a little bit what occurs in terms of your care. Many times you can be having a heart attack and not have changes on your EKG. So there are a lot of, there's a broad spectrum of those findings. Does um, treatment depend on... Um Age, gender, size, other health conditions, do, do those things go into decision-making for... The, the decision-making to some extent is altered a little, obviously with age um, and even your body weight, some of the medications you get, the doses are different. Um, if it is clearly an SD elevation MI and you have you know, no other life-threatening problem going on at that point, everybody's treated the same. Um, so you're going to end up in the cath lab. Um, if you have, for example, a patient who is older and there's not quite the drama of that ST elevation, you know, the approach may be based on what their kidney function is, what their functional status is in terms of how aggressive the interventions are. But typically if you're coming in and you're having a real heart attack, everybody is traded pretty much the same to start with. So the cath lab is used more often today um, than in the past. There, there might have been open surgery or something, right? So right. In, 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 the, in the past and, and still in places where a cath lab is not available, be giving, you would be given a medication um, to try to dissolve that blood clot. Um, the, the downside of that is that carries the risk of bleeding in places you don't want to, your head primarily, um, and that carried a risk um, when in this age of thrombolytics, which are what the medications are referred to, you know, there was a concern and, and statistics and data showed us that up to 1% of people that got these thrombolytics for heart attacks would end up bleeding into their head, many times a fatal bleed. So the the cath lab allows you to visualize where the blockage is and directly mechanically open that artery um, with less of the risk of all of those side effects. What is um, recovery like for someone who's had a heart attack? Um, it depends on the, the course and to some extent. Um, and if you come in quickly and the artery is opened quickly, uh, many patients are now leaving the hospital within uh, 36 hours um, after arrival. So you can come in and, and be going home, you know, two days later. Just a couple days later. Which mm -hmm. is definitely a huge advance. Um, and from that standpoint, the recovery afterwards, many times these patients obviously are fatigued because it's a big stress to your system. But within a couple of weeks, they're feeling back to normal. Oh, wow. um, you know, many patients are directed after an event like this to um, a specific rehab program, uh, cardiac rehabilitation, where their exercise is monitored by EKG. They get um, added education about the risks of 
heart disease, what their limitations are, how to control their cholesterol, many things in terms of education, which is really goes to the attempt long-term to try to decrease the risk of having another heart attack. Well, I'd like to talk about risk factors. Um, if you've had a heart attack, are you at greater risk or, or lesser risk to have another one? Typically, you know, if you've had a heart attack, that's, that's considered a big risk for another one because you've had the substrate for something to occur. A lot of what we do in the outpatient setting is to try to down that risk or, you know, water it down a bit if we can. So we look at your cholesterol and we try to attack the bad cholesterol and get that lowered. We keep you on aspirin long term to prevent you from forming those clots. We're aggressive about controlling your blood pressure. Um, most of us that we don't like to to nag our patients try to get people to stop smoking mm. because it's a huge risk. Now some of the risk factors you know they talk about that can't be changed your your age, your gender, your race, your her heredity, your genes. Um, with women versus men, um, women pre-menopause and post-menopause have a different risk factor, correct? That is correct. Um, estrogen tends to be protective. Um, so pre-menopausal, women have circulating estrogen, which causes their good cholesterol levels to go up. Um, so they tend to have a protective effect from that. Um, there are studies to suggest estrogen also is important for just the health of the blood vessels. So in other words, your chances of forming clots in your arteries is a little bit less. But really, most people believe the primary protector is that good cholesterol. Um, once postmenopausal, once a woman gets to that age, that good cholesterol level starts to drop. So they start becoming uh, equivalent, if you will, in terms of risks to men. Um, the problem being, unfortunately, with women sometimes, so they think, that's great, I'm protected, um, is that they tend to then be older when they start increasing their risk for heart disease. So the with age comes other associated diseases. They may be more likely to have diabetes. They may be more sedentary just because of arthritic changes, which adds to their ability to recover from that heart attack. So there, there's pluses and minuses. Um, and, and there are, you know, 30 and 40 year old women that do have heart attacks. A lot of that's driven by genetics and some of it driven by their risk factors. Oh, great. Well, thank you. This has been very informative. My guest has been cardiologist Dr. Robert Carhart Jr. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, how the HPV vaccine can protect men on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 
The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends males under age 21 be vaccinated for HPV, the human papillomavirus. But in research presented recently at the American Urological Association, two urologists from upstate demonstrated that vaccination rates remain exceedingly low for American males. Here to speak more on this topic is Dr. Timothy Byler, an assistant professor of urology, and Dr. Michael Doherty, chief urology resident. Welcome, both of you. Good morning. Let's begin by explaining what HPV is and why it matters to men. Uh, Dr. Byler? Human papillomavirus, or HPV shorthand, is a virus that is contracted through human contact and is uh, the most commonly sexually transmitted infection globally. It has over 170 different forms that result in different clinical symptoms. About 40 of these are known to spread through sexual contact directly. Many people have it and do not know it or have, have no symptoms or concerns. And studies have shown that a large percentage of these infections may actually go away on their own. So there's um, more than 40 strains of HPV there are, that are sexually transmitted? Yes. Um, okay. And uh, we'll get to this in a minute, but our vaccination covers a small portion of them. Okay. All right. Um, does HPV infection affect infertility for, for men or fertility? It has no direct effect on fertility in men, no. Uh, it can produce uh, external symptoms, which we'll get to in just a minute, or ha and has uh, cancer implications. Because I know uh, with, in women, it affects um, cervical cancer risk, correct? Yes. So for men, does it have um, a cancer? Yes. Um, HPV has been linked to both benign and cancerous conditions. Uh, okay. In the benign form, it can cause the sexually transmitted disease of genital warts. This can cause small growths to occur in the genitals of those infected. Mm -hmm. uh, many many are uh, infected and not aware and do not have visible lesions. Huh. Okay. It's, it's well known to women, as you mentioned, uh, and gynecologists uh, due to its cervical cancer risk. Uh, it's actually linked to over 70% of uh, cervical cancer uh, patients. It's been rec recommended that sexually active women uh, obtain a pap smear and look for these changes and look for the virus. Uh, the impact for males is less clear, but it has been implicated in cancer of the penis, uh, mouth, and anus in Okay. Males. All right. Um, what about circumcision? Does that play a role in um, increasing anyone's... So there's been uh, several studies that have showed that um, from other countries that it, people that were circumcised actually had a lower risk of disease prevalence and a lower transmission risk of HPV. Circumcision also has been shown to have lowered the rate of transmission of HIV amongst people as well. Um, however, when we get to when we looked in our study, we actually found that uh, those men that were circumcised actually had a higher risk of having some HPV strains on from this current study that we did. Okay, so um, you're, Dr. Doherty, you're talking about the research that you did that you presented at the American Urological Association recently? Yep. Mm -hmm. So tell me about um, the study. What, what did you look at and what did you find? So the, the study was looking at the NHANES database, which is the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. Um, it's run by the CDC, as you are mentioning before. Um, and each year they go around different parts of the country and they take uh, people uh, from different counties and different places and they do a series of lab work and different testing and questionnaires for them as well. And during the years uh, 2013 and 2014, they collected uh, penile swabs from men, um, and they then tested them for HPV DNA to then see what different strains that they had and who had it, and to then look at how it affected the population. Because this is something, as you mentioned, that you, you may have and not know. 
Because yes. there's, is there always no symptoms or are there some symptoms that you can be alert for? Uh, so it's very common, honestly. I, for most of these men in this study, I think were completely asymptomatic. There was no lesions that they tested. It was just testing the penile skin. Uh, the majority of these HPVs don't necessarily cause an external lesion. Even the ones that are known to cause genital warts, they uh, say 16 to 22% of them will go on to develop an external lesion. So it's very common to not have a visible manifestation of the disease. But um, even if you don't have a visible manifestation, you could spread this disease to a sexual partner? Absolutely. That's, That's part of the concern is you, most people will have it and be able to spread it to others without even knowing. Men or women? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, um, so you presented this at the conference or the, okay. Um, well, let's talk about the vaccination that's available. How does, how does it work? So there are currently actually three vaccinations that are available. Um, there are the three of them are available to all women. Um, that's there, that they have different strains that they protect against. Um, the two of them, the ones that have four different strains and nine different strains are the ones that are available for men. Um, and they recommend for men normally once they get into adolescence to get the vaccination. Um, it works by giving the DNA uh, of the virus and then it allows the body to be to like become aware up. to it so they can then in treat it if it were to be in infect them in the future. Okay, but only for those 12 or so Right, so they, it's not for all strains of HPV. They picked the, the most common initially is why the first for the strains that had four available, it was the two most common that caused cancers and then also the two for genital warts. The ones that have the nine strains is has the genital warts and then also the, the seven most common that are known to cause cancers. Okay. So, and this vaccine has only been around, what, in the last five or ten years? Yes, so. I believe the first one came out in 2007. Uh, and uh, the most recent one, the highest, uh, the nine uh, coverage... Uh, came out in 2013 or so. Uh, and let me add that this uh, this vaccine is extremely effective, uh, has almost 100% protection against these strains in studies. Uh, and that's not always the case with all vaccines. Oh. But it's recommended for adolescents, um, boys to have, well, and girls too, but we're speaking about boys, um, to get the vaccine. So I guess my point is there's a lot of men who never got it. It wasn't available when they were adolescents. Are they recommended to get a vaccine? Are they the, like catching up? The current the recommendation the is just to vaccinate, recommended for all males under the age of 21, and they extend it to those uh, that are 26 or younger that have high risk, okay. um, either characteristics, either it's men who have sex with men, or I think an increased number of partners or even immunocompromised. Other okay. than that, they haven't extended it further for people when they're older. Okay, so over time, the population will become more vaccinated. Yes. Uh, well, assuming people get the vaccine, because didn't you find that there was an exceedingly low number of boys that are... Yeah, it's very surprising. So when we looked at all of the patients, it was about roughly 10% of them uh, had reported a history of the vaccination. We then looked at further those that were actually under the age of 25 that would be in that window of who should have had a vaccination at that time, and that was only about 22% of them. So that still is more than three quarters of these men in this target range have not been vaccinated. So your study probably didn't look at why they weren't vaccinated, but do you have any speculations or have you seen Yeah, that? unfortunately with the way that the, the NHANES runs that their data collection, it doesn't go into exactly why you didn't have a vaccination, just have you received it before. It's possible that it's lack of awareness that there's a vaccination available. Um, 
even because it's due to normally when men are in their adolescence as opposed to when they're a child and it's their normal vaccination schedule where they go routinely, routinely to the pediatrician to get their series of vaccinations. Right. It's 10, 15 years after that where they have to get a new vaccination that it could be that they either Kinda are not compliant with it, they don't come to the doctors regularly, and they're not a, aware of it. Okay. All right. Uh, because the vaccination rates, I think, are a lot higher for girls, but maybe they're more mindful of going to a gynecologist who keeps track of that or something. Yeah, I think that there was initially a lot of, it was initially created for women. So the bigger push or publicity for it was geared towards women and preventing uh, cervical cancer. So I think it's just a, the men are kind of behind on terms of their awareness for it, and it's moving along, it's just delayed compared to how it is for females. All right, so if the symptoms, if, you, if, if you're a male and you have HPV, if you're infected and you don't really have symptoms, what's bad about it other than the fact that you could be spreading it to a sexual partner, but what is it doing to you in your body that's bad? You mentioned genital warts. It's, yes, so cer some certain strains can cause visible lesions that can uh, emer uh, emerge at any point. Uh, so the genital warts is certainly a common uh, disorder. And in our study, we found about 3% of men were infected with strains that could cause visible lesions. Uh, as you mentioned, something around 20% of men that have that will produce lesions, but... Uh, let me emphasize that NHANES uh, data is on a population level. So this is not like a small subset of men. This is meant to be generalizable to millions. Okay. So when we say 3%, we're really talking about millions of men. Okay. Uh, and that means, you know, millions of men that may develop a lesion. And then the general warts need to be treated? Is that... M many people seek treatment when they have an external lesion for a number of reasons. Um, in themselves, they are not dangerous, but they are obviously cosmetic uh, and embarrassing to patients. And that's the ma main reason why they come in. Uh, you know, as we mentioned, a lot of these men are in sexually active, uh, you know, younger age groups, uh, maybe still dating, and they're embarrassed to have something like that when they meet a new partner. Uh, so they seek treatment. Uh, treatment estimates um, have we've uh, estimated around $200 million are spent per year treating genital warts. So it's not a simple, it's not a small problem. Okay. Okay. Another, and go ahead. Another issue with HPV is it has been associated with penile cancer. Okay. As we mentioned before, it's uh, about 50 to 70% of all penile cancers uh, are associated with underlying HPV infection as well. Uh, penile cancer is much more rare compared to cervical cancer in the U.S. population, but it still can be a devastating disease when it occurs and something that could possibly be prevented with an HPV vaccination. And did I hear you right? The majority of penile cancers have HPV at the, as yeah, the root the, cause? Or the, when looking at it, it's between 50 to 70% of all penile cancers have an underlying HPV infection as well. How would you know that you have a, a penile cancer? What would the, be the symptoms that a person would? Uh, there's many symptoms that come up. Lar largely, it's a lesion on the, on the penis that is growing, bleeding, potentially, uh, could be emitting some sort of foul discharge uh, that, you know, we eventually examine uh, and determine that it's cancer. I, honestly, uh, for patients, I think if you have a lesion uh, that you're concerned about in this realm, it's not something you should be self-diagnosing. It's something that you should seek treatment for and, uh, you know, see a doctor to, to uh, be evaluated to decide, is this a genital wart or, um, or something, cancer. Something, something more sinister. So um, how is that treated in general, penile cancer? Uh, 
and there's a lot of variables that come into play in terms of treatment, uh, but generally we have to surgically remove it. So part of the penis is removed during that process, whether that be you know just a small part or potentially the whole penis. Um, so it's that's as he mentioned, this is devastating to men. Wow. Okay. The major point I wanted to bring up was just that uh, the vaccine's out there and people should know about it uh, and talk to their primary care physicians about potentially receiving it if, if they're interested or getting more information about it. And if there is any visible lesions that are present uh, on the penis, don't make any assumptions. Uh, we're happy to Get evaluate it, it any form. All right, great. Well, my guests have been Dr. Timothy Byler and Dr. Michael Doherty from Upstate's Department of Urology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, are you at risk for a hereditary cancer? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. From 5 to 10% of cancers result from a genetic mutation that is inherited from a parent. These are known as hereditary cancers, and here to help us understand cancer genetic risk assessment is Dr. Gloria Morris, an upstate doctor who's board certified in internal medicine and medical oncology. Welcome, Dr. Morris. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. Now, I know you're relatively new to Upstate, so tell me a little about your background. Where did you train? And Yes, thank you. I trained in, first I went to college in Syracuse, grew up in Syracuse, so I'm very familiar with Syracuse. I have family here. So you're a here. LeMoyne graduate? Yes, LeMoyne okay. College, and then was seeking actually an MD-PhD program um, in the nation, ended up going to the Medical University of South Carolina uh, down in Charleston at the genesis of their cancer center as well, the Hollings Cancer Center. So I got to see a lot of wonderful research there and through my clinical rotations really had an avidity for medical oncology. Um, I was there for eight years and trained in molecular biology. So my interest in the genome and genes is really piqued by my uh, for, uh, my uh, practice later in oncology and really studying what patients can and might inherit uh, that can either cause tumors or uh, genes that can be inherited through families and how we can actually target those genes. So very important in the oncology field in the comprehensive care of, of cancer patients and their families. I did train in Philadelphia where I had additional mentors in cancer and also was exposed to the need for genetic testing, particularly in breast and ovarian cancers. Um, I did my fellowship training in Fox Chase Cancer Center, where they do have several uh, genetics counseling training programs, even for practitioners who have not formally undergone fellowship training or board certification in genetics counseling. Um, When I had my first uh, uh, time in private practice, I was invited to direct a genetics counseling program and 
um, received, uh, went for further intensive training through the City of Hope in Los mm. Angeles, a phenomenal cancer center also who has uh, the ability to mentor uh, practitioners at any level um, in genetics risk assessment for cancers. So here at Upstate, you're gonna, you'll be doing genetic counseling. Yes, and okay. we can still network with all these cancer centers uh, in terms of their ability to counsel each other okay. uh, for genetics training as well. Interesting. So um, tell me, does hereditary mean the same thing as genetic? It does, as we think about it. Um, there's multiple terms that can be interchangeable. Um, genetic, in terms of how we view cancer, certainly uh, certainly refers to what is heritable, what is inherited from generation to generation. And we do counsel patients that, indeed, is very important to understand both the maternal and paternal backgrounds because we do inherit half our genes from our mother, half our genes from our father. And so the cancer history on both sides of the family is extremely important. Is it equally important? It is actually equally important, okay. yes, okay. indeed. Uh, so we strongly look at both sides of the family and try to look at successive generations where there really is, in, in contrast to many of the um, pediatric or other uh, sex-linked chromosomal disorders that we might see in children and babies, for example, the genetic components of cancer mutations um, actually can be so strong that it only takes one copy oh. from one parent to actually raise the risk of cancer in an adult, uh, an adult child. Okay. Which um, cancers are most often hereditary? Most often hereditary, uh, very importantly to remember, could be some types of breast cancer, especially those which can occur at a much younger age, and especially some specific types of breast cancer, which could be more aggressive in their behavior. We, we know them now as triple negative breast cancers, for example, those that don't respond to any type of hormonal manipulation after they've been treated. Um, we specifically look at gynecologic cancers, including ovarian cancer. Um, and male breast cancer, more of the unusual types of, of cancers, certainly can come from a genetic predisposition. Um, interestingly, uh, there are a few types of kidney cancers that can be inherited. Um, there are many types of colon cancers, which are very common, could be inherited uh, by genes that can cause a person to either make several polyps through the intestine or not. And all of those, interestingly, can overlap with one another. And so that's even more of the reason why we do look for the family history and multiple types of cancers, because the more that we've learned about these genes, that, that if mutated can cause these cancers, the more we can see how even a breast cancer gene might also have the potential to cause an increased risk of ovarian cancer down the line or uh, prostate cancer, huh. for example, or melanoma. So we actually have to keep in mind not just specific uh, types of tumors, but also where they might overlap wow. and show up in the family. 
interesting. I didn't realize that they were connected it's, that way. It's getting more and more complicated, but then again, more and more fascinating as we discover. And, and when I say we, I am personally standing on the shoulders of giants because the amount of analysis that has gone into this over the years is incredible. Any practitioner now is able to order several types of gene panels because the genes have been discovered to all cluster around one another. And even if one is negative for one type of gene mutation, we do make sure that we have tested all of the other types of genes that cluster around them in a chromosome location. So what are the red flags for a patient or for their doctor? For, you know, When should someone be tested for whether they have a risk for a hereditary cancer? Yes, this is one of the most important issues that we really do try to um, uh, project, you know, for all of the community is that the, the greatest potential and the greatest suspicion that we really start to look for a genetic predisposition or a hereditary reason for a cancer in an individual is young age. Very specifically, if breast cancers do occur under the age of 50, for example, this is a, a bit more unusual uh, than cancers that can happen later in life. And it has been shown that the age of 50 is a pivotal time uh, that might distinguish a hereditary cause for cancers mm -hmm. or, uh, or the more likely uh, sporadic cancers by chance. Um, there are even breast cancer-related genes that can heighten the risk of breast cancer even under the age of 40 or 35. Those are even more serious that we would really want to assess a person, uh, woman or man, uh, for their risk of breast cancer. So if they have a family member who, a mother, say, yes. who's been diagnosed in her 40s with breast cancer, yes, indeed. her children might be. Yes, we okay. see many patients and welcome the opportunity to counsel families if there is a uh, uh, family member, particularly a first-degree relative. And so if a, if a person is not affected by cancer, but they have an immediate first-degree relative, with a young age at the diagnosis of their cancer, we do want to assess them. And we do um, make sure that people understand that the first degree relatives do include siblings or parents or children. And then second degree relatives are also included in hereditary criteria. And those would be aunts, uncles, and grandparents. Interesting. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Gloria Morris, an Upstate physician board certified in internal medicine and medical oncology with extensive training in cancer genetic risk assessment. So how early do you advise people um, to consider genetic testing of children? That's a great question that we often consult, you know, with national boards with for guidelines. We usually consider patients um, in general uh, above the age of 21 for cancer risk assessment. Now that is, uh, that is related to counseling them for the risk of any cancers which might show up in adulthood. Now, indeed, we do have to take into consideration, of course, special circumstances of 
uh, genetic predisposition in which a, a cancer gene syndrome might include a childhood type of cancer. That, uh, and those would be more like one of the very early types of familial uh, polyp-causing colon cancers, for example, other endocrine types of cancers, which could lead to an early type of thyroid cancer, for example, retinoblastoma. So we partner with our pediatric colleagues and pediatric experts really to try to determine how a specific family can be best served. So we do see children in, in certain circumstances, but the bulk of the known uh, hereditary cancer syndromes, if they certainly can manifest in adulthood, we want to make sure that the um, adult that we are counseling, primarily over the age of 21, is really able to grasp the intensity and the gravity of what a positive result might mean for them. Certainly, we do understand and give a lot of support uh, for uh, adults over the age of 21 when we need to screen for genetic cancers because it really may impact, for example, in the case of any type of breast cancer in the future or gynecologic or reproductive cancer, we really need to place that then in the context of a person's desire for family planning, um, childbearing, uh, and in certain circumstances, whether or not their uh, future spouse may also be at risk for harboring a mutation. And as you can glean, this really comes because uh, there's almost like a, a mathematical or analytical view to this in that we want to make sure that their successive children um, will be either known or, or not known to also harbor the likelihood to carry a mutation too. Now, it, it makes me wonder whether it's more stressful it is. to not know or if it's more stressful to know. It, it, that's, a, that's a great point. And, and we, really, we really offer support uh, for patients. Well, and tell me how to, anyone who's listening to this, tell me how they would reach you and yes. what they could expect if they um, came for a consultation. Yes, yes. Um, we can be reached through the supportive services from the, the Upstate, Upstate Cancer, Cancer Center. Center. Yes. Okay. Um, we do have a main telephone number for that at 464-3510. And do they need a referral or can someone call on their own? Both, actually. Okay. Uh, right. We do take self-referrals and are very happy to counsel anyone for their specific questions about their possible risk, especially if they have had someone in the family with an early diagnosis of cancer, multiple generations of cancers that run in the family. And we would sit and um, discuss with them the likelihood or not that their cancer might run in the family and what their true risks might be. Does this involve a blood test? Yes. Uh, we can test for a number of genetic mutations just with a simple blood test. It's usually one small tube of blood that is drawn and sent off in a kit to many nationally recognized genetic laboratories. Interestingly, if that is not um, feasible for a patient or not comfortable, uh, there are 
what they call buckle wash kits or saliva uh, samples that can be taken with data that has shown that these are actually just as accurate uh, as a blood sample. Well, interesting. My guest has been medical oncologist, Dr. Gloria Morris of the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Eric Norby, a poet from Minnesota, has written a searing portrait of what in medical education we call the disease-illness paradigm. The body, the physical body, experiences the assault of disease, but it is the patient who suffers its inexorable progress. Here is a disease of smallness. It arrives like an ant, off-ramping from an axon, idling into the opening at the base of your head. It arrives with the slight sensation of a balloon tied to your spine, tugged. It begins by returning you to your packaging like an aster pushed back into its stem or a firecracker refolded into its casing. And then your face, it too shut, as if a locket, still there, but not, like a picture painted into a window. And getting dressed each morning, having a smile, only to find the muscles shrank. And then you begin to lose your reason for taking space and try to leave your body like a mollusk, abandoning its shell. Only a few hints left of who you were your black hair still erupting like an uprooted tree, and your freckles, they too still there, as if a spray of light dried from the time you hardly remember when once you held the sun in your eyes. On a lighter and more hopeful note, Eric Norby offers us a poem about the hand. This is called The Movement of Warmth. Perhaps our greatest discovery was finding the heart in the wrist, how it is vulnerable, bent back like a neck, and the first thing we offer to a stranger. How two hearts held naked in the silence of such ordinary hands can touch. How silence is really not stillness at all, but the movement of warmth, like a body falling asleep, always turning in to bring the hearts at the ends of the body closer. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. On next week's show, HealthLink on Air explores how trauma and violence affects mental health, and we discuss the impact smoking has on bone health. If you missed any of today's show, 
Listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thank you.